0: Verses 1 to 12, it's our sermon text for today. It's a well-known passage about John the Baptist. The challenge with familiar passages is for us to hear them. But all four Gospels have this event, and if it's repeated, we're supposed to get it. (laughs) We're supposed to hear it. And it's important. So let's, let's read Matthew chapter 3 together and we'll, we'll pray and look at this. This is God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing barn and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." And this is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us to repent. you tell us that the, for you to come to us, we need to be honest about who we are to make way uh, for you to, to come into our lives. You know, I know my heart, and I know what it's like to be human, and I know we need help. So we ask that your spirit would be here to soften our hearts, to show us who we are, and to show us the wonder of your mercy in Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Even though this is found in all four Gospels, this is a pretty strange event, is it not? That the guy starts preaching out in the desert, out in the middle of nowhere, and all these crowds just rush out into the middle of nowhere to to confess to God how terrible they are and that they deserve God's wrath and judgment. I mean, that's not a normal thing. It doesn't matter where you are. The fact that these people are willing to look at themselves and say, I deserve God to, to cut me off. Here are my sins. Here's the list of everything I've done wrong that I'm aware of. All right. And it's not, they come out from the capital city, all the surrounding region. It's not like John was gentle either. It's not like he was a kind and gentle soul. This is not preaching health and wealth gospel. It, He's just being honest. He just says, you need to repent. God is coming. And he even turns to the religious people today and says, oh, look, the the children of Satan have arrived. Look at who brought all these snakes. Who warned you guys? It's not a popular sermon. That's all John has. He has one sermon. God is coming. He's coming in judgment. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's going to divide humanity in two, those who believe and those who do not. So get ready. He's coming. This is how you get God to come into your life. And I know this is not a popular thing to say, but the way to get God, the way to know God, the way to experience God, the way for God to, to have an impact in your life is to confess your, your need of his grace because his judgment is real if you do not. And I just read this past week that Albany Schenectady and Troy has... Um, this area is now one of the least Bible-minded areas in the region. We were 99 out of 100 in 2015. And now, we're, now we're number 100. So we're going the wrong direction. And all they mean by that is, do you care what the Bible says? Do you read it? Do you believe it? Do you think it's true? Do you think it's helpful? Do you think it's wise? And so we live in a part of the world where this just isn't going to happen, apart from God's Spirit moving. All right. To have people come in towards God and say, I'm a sinner. And you stop and think about, this is our prayer as a church. We want the gospel to go forward. We want people to meet Jesus. We want them to find his grace, or his grace to find them. What we're asking is a hard thing. To stand up and say, I am a sinner not just that I feel bad because I haven't met my own expectations but because I've offended a holy God. It's not comfortable. Whenever the Holy Spirit moves, whenever God comes into a place and new people come to faith, there's a lot of tears. Um, one of the least Christian areas back in the 20th century was, was South Korea. And they almost, almost had no church in South Korea in the beginning of the 20th century. And then there was this massive revival and now South Korea sends out more missionaries than anyone else in the world. But the way they got there was prayer meetings where the Holy Spirit showed up and people just stood up and publicly confessed their sins. One of the local pastors turned up and the missionary was telling the story, he turned to the pastor and said, I hate you. And I've hated you. And he started confessing that. Another guy stood up and said, I just committed murder last week. (laughs) When the Holy Spirit comes down, when the gospel gets preached and people start confessing their sins, it's not a comfortable thing. And that's what we're about to walk into. When John the Baptist says, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. God is coming. His king is coming. Get ready. The way you get ready is repentance. And this is important because it's in the, like I said, it's in every gospel. Uh, This is Jesus's sermon. It's not just John's. When Jesus starts his ministry later on in Matthew, you're going to see it says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. It's at hand, it's here. So, what is repentance? We'll start with that and then we'll jump in. How do we get, how is God, how does John the Baptist and his sermon get us to get ready for Jesus to come into our lives? But what is repentance? I mean, in some ways, it's it's quite simple. It's just agreeing with who God says you are. Agreeing with God's verdict. That you are a sinner. Not just that you've broken God's law. Not just you, me as well. Right? Not just by virtue of, of being human, you have broken God's law, but you've offended the lawgiver. Because everybody has a standard when it comes to feeling bad. And the difference between Christian Repentance and worldly repentance is the world just says, I feel bad because I don't measure up. And Christian repentance says, I feel bad because I know whom I've harmed. I've offended God. And yet, this is the way God comes to you. This is the way the kingdom of heaven comes into your life. It's through repentance. How do you get there? How how do you get to the point where you want to confess, where you want to repent, where it becomes a natural part of your life as Christians, or if you're outside of the church, how do you get non-religious people to even consider it? Because we're being called to consider this morning that Jesus separates the wheat from the chaff, and all those who do not put their faith in him will be thrown into an unquenchable fire, which is the metaphor for hell, right, and... You say, what does that mean? Is it literal? Are people going to be you know, slow-roasted for eternity? <coughs> well, it's a metaphor. It's, it's worse than that. It's, it's falling apart. It's just trying to say it's, it's not going to be comfortable and it's not going to end. It's unquenchable. As you're separated for eternity from the living God. By your choice. And I know we as Christians, we don't like this. I, I, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm not naturally a... A, what do you call it? A turner Burn preacher? Right? Hell and damnation? Um, but it's everywhere. All the way through the scriptures, Jesus himself talks more about the doctrine of hell than anyone else, and he's the physical embodiment of love. And so we have to talk about it. So how does, how does John's sermon, Repent for the Kingdom of God, the Kingdom of Heaven? You can interchange those through Matthew is here. How does he get the religious and non-religious to be this honest and this self-aware? And so we got four points. The the first is that the king is coming into the wilderness. We're gonna look at verses three, chapter three, one through six. And this is where we see the context for your repentance for God coming. John the Baptist is the first voice from God that the people of Israel have heard For 400 years, and the first thing he says that God tell that God is telling his people to do in the wilderness is to repent. And this is important to know the context. What is the wilderness? It's one of the main themes of the Bible. That that the world is not paradise, and we've talked about this before. It's it's like a desert. This is where everyone lives. This is where you and I live. I mean, this is a beautiful place. It's a beautiful part of the world, but the metaphor that we're supposed to think about when God comes down into, from heaven to earth, he's not coming down into the Garden of Eden anymore, where people, he's coming down into a wilderness, thorns and thistles, the land of death. I don't know, we as upstate New Yorkers, we think of wilderness as, as the Adirondacks, you know, going out into the woods. But it's quite easy to survive out in the Adirondacks. I mean, you, don't, you have to be more of an expert to survive in the wilderness than you do to be in, in the Adirondacks. You, you can eat better than locusts and wild honey. Right? There's, there's all kinds of meat and stuff. You know, this is the desert that God is coming into, into this world. It's, it's an inhabitable space. There's thorns, there's unbearable heat, there's unquenchable thirst. Uh, you can never find enough food because farming is not an option you're always hungry any th- any life that bursts into the scene is gone by midday because the desert kills it it's a lonely place because nobody builds a community in the wilderness i mean this, this is what the metaphor is trying to get you to think about is that the human life outside of the garden of eden your life my life it's a place of suffering it's it's the wilderness It's the Bible's way of describing what is wrong with this world, and this is where God, the kingdom of heaven, is coming down into and where he's telling us to repent. And what's fascinating is you read the history of the Bible, this is where God always meets his people. Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, in Genesis. Where does God come and find him? He's completely alone in the desert. the, The ladder from heaven, angels going up and down. Abraham is, God comes to him and he sends him out in the desert. The nation of Israel, they're freed from Egypt and they're sent into the wilderness. Or David, a lot of the Psalms are so powerful because he knows what life is like in the wilderness as he suffers and says, God, I need you. Jesus, you're going to see, as soon as he comes, starts his ministry, the Holy Spirit comes. We're going to talk about it next week. He goes right out into the wilderness. This is, this is the, the theme for the Christian life. This is where you and I live. We are living in a place of hardship on a journey through the wilderness to, to our final destination, heaven, the promised land. And that's why Matthew is quoting this here. He's quoting Isaiah to describe what's going on as John the Baptist shows up, that this voice in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere, it says, Get ready. The Lord is coming. Yahweh is coming. Make straight a highway for our God. And so here's what I want you to consider. This is what it's, it's saying several things. One, don't, you're not going to get comfortable in the wilderness. And if you are comfortable right now, it's not going to last. Because the desert is the land of. of of difficulty and desolation. I know this is, is real cheery, but it's real life. And second, the wilderness is trying to teach us that we need God to provide everything. We need God to be king. That's why the king is coming down because we have rejected the king in the wilderness. And you think, remember Israel's story. We'll talk more about this next week. When they were in the wilderness and God was right there with them providing their needs day in and day out, they didn't want him. Say, God, you're not doing it right. I've, I've got a lawsuit. I'm going to bring up charges. You're not being God the way I would be God. You see, the wilderness, to tie all this together, this is the place where God meets his people and the place where we are most tempted to believe that God doesn't care about us. And I'll say it again, that the wilderness is where God meets his people in the place where we are most tempted to believe that he's given up on us. Remember, this is 400 years of silence. And if you read Isaiah 40 all the way through the original hearers of that, that prophecy, it's the same thing. Isaiah 40:27, God's people said, basically said they're embittered and angry and feel like God's left them. They're saying things like, God doesn't even notice me. I'm miserable down here. My life is invisible to God. He's, it's like he's ignoring my rights. God, where are you? It was written to the exiles in Babylon who had to be dragged through the desert from their homes into a place of hardship and suffering. You see, this is life in the wilderness. This is when the kingdom of heaven comes down. When God calls to you, he doesn't come to you when you're at your best. He comes to you when you're at your, at your worst, in the midst of suffering and hardship. When, you're, when your life is a relational mess, when your life is a financial difficulty, your career's fallen apart, or your family's broken, um, you've made questionable moral decisions and you hate yourself, this is, this is when the kingdom of heaven is most primed to come down. The place where God meets us to get our attention. Maybe this is too abstract, I'll give you an example of a person. A little more modern, Oscar Wilde. You guys remember Oscar Wilde from from high school English or college English class? The picture of Dorian Gray you might have had to read. Um, I had no idea what I was reading when I read it. But Oscar Wilde was this, he was one of the most famous playwrights in London in the 1800s. And so picture like an ancient Victorian Hollywood type celebrity. Like he was living the dream. He was a guy who liked to party, he had money. He had power, he had influence, he was famous. And for Oscar Wilde at this point in his life, he finally reached a peak and he decided to sue the father of one of his friends for doing something inappropriate, pointing out sin in the government. But it also came out in the midst of that, that Oscar Wilde was in in a homosexual relationship at the time when it was illegal to do so. It was a crime punishable by prison back then. And so at the end of this whole process, he went from being like number one in the city of London to being thrown into jail in absolute misery. He lost everything. All right, and this is how he describes himself in prison. We have letters that he wrote weekly from prison. And he said, Up until this point in prison, I had dealt with everything bad happening to me with some kind of stubbornness of will. I just powered through, he says and a lot of rebellious nature until the only thing I had left in this world was my son, Cyril. I lost my name, my position, my happiness, my freedom, my wealth. I was a prisoner and a beggar. But I had one thing left. I still had my son. And then suddenly the law took him away. And it was a blow so appalling, this is still Oscar Wilde, that I did not know what to do, so I threw myself on my knees and bowed my head, and I wept. And I said, the body of a child is the same as the body of the Lord. I'm not worthy of either. And that moment seemed to save me. Then I saw that the only thing for me to do was to accept everything. And since then, which sounds weird, I was actually happier. (laughs) And and here's what he was saying. He said, everything was great, wonderful. In the wilderness, I was comfortable. And then I started to lose everything. And When I lost my son, when he was taken away, he didn't die, he was just lost access through the law. Then God got my attention. I said, I'm not worthy to be a parent or to be in the kingdom of God. And then I I started to find joy again. God came down. It's a pretty powerful testimony. You see, this is the point. This is why... Jesus' ministry starts in the wilderness with somebody saying, get ready. Because the wilderness is the place where God gets our attention. Say, you need me. And he uses these wilderness type experiences to lead us to repentance, to show us his kindness through this hardship. All right. He uses our misery to open our ears so when someone says, God can come to you and make a difference, we actually learn to listen because I have nowhere else to turn. So, all right, this is where the kingdom of God is coming. It's coming into the wilderness. And then the second thing we get, you see here is why we should repent. Right? The kingdom is coming to change the wilderness. What is the motivation for repentance? Right, it says Because this is, this is John's sermon. Look at it. It says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it says, For... Because this is what Isaiah said. And so Matthew says that the voice calling in the wilderness is John the Baptist. He's telling us that God's kingdom is coming and that's why we should repent. Get ready, God is coming. And what does all that mean? Because the full quote in Isaiah we read earlier, it paints this graphic picture of being in the desert that's rocky, that's hilly, there's valleys, there's mountains, there's all kinds of stuff. And it says all that's just going to come down and come be flat, and the king's going to be able to walk straight through the desert in a place of comfort. And it's, not, it's going to be an easy journey. And that's how they did things in the ancient world. When a king would come to a new place, the slaves would go out and make a nice road for him to, to pave the way, to make it easy for the king to come to their to honor them with his presence is basically saying do everything you can to make the coming of this King easier on him. And in the ancient world it wasn't good news because that meant all kinds of injustice because the slaves would be put to work. But What Isaiah is trying to get you to see and what Matthew wants you to see that this coming of the, the one true King, God himself, is good news. It's, it's the very opposite. Because Think about the picture. What kind of King would come and when he comes The mountains are going to be flattened and the valleys are going to be filled in. What kind of power must he have? It's a picture of cosmic power making a road through the desert. And that on this road will come God's king. Isaiah fills in the rest of the picture in Isaiah 40. He says, look, the king is coming. He's coming with strength. He's going to bring his reward and his justice, his recompense. And he's going to tend his flock like a shepherd. And he's going to carry on this path, through on this road, the lambs in his arms. And he's going to gently lead those who are with young. And so I'll tie this together. Why, why should you do the hard work of repentance? Why should you do the painful work of saying, I'm, I'm a sinner, God. I've offended you. Because the king is coming. And he's coming in the desert. And he's the kind of king who has the cosmic power to change everything. We can put it this way. This is the king who's coming. Is the king your heart is longing for. He's going to bring healing into the wilderness. His coming is good news. He's coming in power, and his reward is with him. Now, I know this is a weird way of thinking, but he's bringing his wealth. What is this king carrying, according to Isaiah? It's not money. He's carrying the helpless lambs. He's caring for the weak, he's caring for the hurt, the hurting, the needy. It's saying that this king, when he comes, he's gonna look at those languishing in the wilderness who are questioning God, who are hurting, who are weak and broken, he's gonna pick them up and he says, this is my reward. You are my wealth. He's talking about Christians. All right. Our kids, you remember Aladdin, Disney's Aladdin? Remember when, when Prince, Prince Ali comes to town for the first time to show off to the princess and he's got all this money, he's got the monkeys, he's got the monkeys, the animals. He's showing off his money, he's generous, he's thrown out, it's this big extravaganza. It's that kind of picture, the king is coming. Except in Aladdin, right, he wants to show how great and powerful he is by showing how wealthy he is. The picture of this king coming is the king coming by carrying his people. That's what makes him feel wealthy. He's the king who carries his people through the wilderness, flattening the mountains, lifting up the valleys, who has the ultimate power to turn the desert into a garden, to bring new life. And that's the picture of this king coming. Isaiah 35 is telling us more about how the the road that that this king will walk through through the desert. And as he walks through it, it says the desert's going to rejoice. It's going to blossom. Life is going to happen. The eyes of the blind are going to be open. The ears of the deaf are going to be unstopped. It sounds like Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? The the lame shall leap like a deer. The the mute shall sing for joy. The waters will break forth in the wilderness. The burning sand will become a pool. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The the jackals will have no place to go because the grass is going to grow in the desert. And the highway shall be there. The road. It will be the way of holiness. And no one unclean will be allowed to walk on it. And it's going to be a safe place. No lion shall be there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And those who are the ransomed of the Lord, those who are God's reward, you and I, they're going to come home with singing and rejoicing. And See, all this is in the background of Isaiah when he says, get ready, the king is coming. Repent. Because ki- this king who comes, he's going to carry the weak, he's going to carry the sinner, the broken, to deal with all the wilderness out there, all the hardship, all the suffering. And so John's sermon, it sounds harsh in the beginning, but there's actually good news behind it. It's saying repent because the kingdom is coming, the kingdom of heaven. And when this king comes, nothing will ever remain the same. It's repent because this king cares about you. He's bringing renewal to all things. He's bringing his reward. But the other side of this, this is the part we don't like, right? I've softened you up before the punch to the gut comes. (laughs) He's bringing his recompense, his justice. Because he wants to go after the wilderness in your heart, the wildness, the sin. And this is the heart of what John's getting at getting after John the Baptist he's saying repent because the kingdom this king wants to come to your house to your wilderness look at verse 12 when this king comes he's going to clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and burn the chaff it's this picture of final judgment it's a harvesting metaphor and all it's saying is that when Jesus comes when God's king comes he's going to divide Humanity in half. The wheat, those whom he he cares and loves, who are saved by grace will be over here and the chaff will be over here and the chaff will just be blown away and thrown into the fire. That's also the motive for repentance. I I like to draw people in through the presentation of the gospel, but the other side of the gospel is repent because God's justice is real. That even gentle Jesus, Jesus uh, meek and mild, he comes with the Holy Spirit, yes, but also with fire. Now there's, there's some humbling things in here. It's saying you and I have to repent. And it's also showing us that this is an impossibly difficult thing to do apart from grace because it's saying that everybody has to repent. Just the whole idea of baptism in John's day. All kinds of people are coming out to be baptized, but this was an unusual thing. This is a new thing. Because in the Old Testament times, nobody got baptized like John the Baptist was baptizing people. The Jews, they believe if if I'm going to come into God's presence, I have to wash my hands. i just got to make myself clean. I'm a little dirty. And the Gentiles, the way they would do it, if they were going to come into the temple, they had to wash themselves completely. But there was no such thing as God, through one of his servants, actually physically baptizing and washing somebody else. It was a graphic picture of saying, if you're going to repent, you need to be able to humbly say, I can't clean myself up. I can't deal with this sin problem on my own. I, I have to be baptized. I have to confess. All right. The picture of baptism is this. John's saying, you have to let me baptize you because you need to be saved by grace. You can't do this on your own. The whole point of going to be John's baptism was to go out and say, I'm so filthy because of what I've done. I need God's mercy to save me. It's not just that they were confessing sins, but to go through the baptism was an act of confession of throwing themselves completely at the mercy of God to determine who would be wheat or chaff. And this is a call that goes out to absolutely everyone. This is what we learn from the Pharisees. Look at it. The the Pharisees and Sadducees come out. These are the religious leaders, the guys who care about the Bible and those who only believe parts of it. The Pharisees are the strict uh, Bible teachers of the day. The Sadducees only believed in parts of it. But they were, all, they were the ones in power and say, what are these people doing? And John turns to them and says, you sons of vipers, who warned you that you needed help? Don't assume that you are children of Abraham and be spared because of your ethnicity. Whew, that's harsh. Right, he's saying, if you want this king to come into your life, you have to be willing to be radically honest and say, not even my ethnicity, not my family, not my good deeds. There is absolutely nothing that commends yourself to this God. And he says that to the best people in the culture of that day, saying you can't depend on your denomination to get you in at the end, to get through judgment. You can't depend on good theology, saying I got it right more than those other guys. Although that is important. It's saying, kids, you can't depend on the faith of your parents. You have to make the faith your own. It's saying your money, you can't depend on your money, your talent, your, your goodness or your badness, and that even if you're as good as the Pharisee, it won't be good enough. And we we make fun of the Pharisees because they always seem like they're, they are always on Jesus' uh, naughty list. Right? He's, he's, they're always standing there opposing Jesus' ministry. But really, these are the best of the best. These are the guys who said, it's not enough that I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments to the best of my ability. I'm going to come up with 603 other laws to make sure I don't break those ten. As Jesus is going to say later in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not just that the Pharisees were, ah. it's not just that they set the bar too low, They're too high, they set it too low. Right, I mean, These are were, these were the guys trying really, really hard. And Jesus says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness, your goodness has to exceed what they have already achieved. They're in the right direction, but they're still not close enough. So this is John the Baptist's sermon. Nobody gets into the kingdom of heaven. This king will not come to you. There are, there are mountains in the way if you will not confess. If you do not repent and say, there is absolutely nothing that makes me attractive to God because of me. And that's humbling. Right. It's even more humbling because he calls the Pharisees brood of vipers. Right? You children of snakes. You speak trying to help people, but you actually kill people. Paul quotes that same verse to describe all of humanity, to make the point that no one is righteous before God under the law. Romans chapter 3. I'll read it. It says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one's seeking for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And here's where Paul quotes this. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, Right, vipers is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's, that's hard. So, this is John's sermon Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, the king who will restore all things. He also comes to reveal all things, including what is in your heart. And so, the question that, that we have to ask ourselves is Would your words pass the poison test? Do they always help? Do they always encourage? Do they never introduce despair or shame or violence or hurt? This is what John's after. This is what the gospel's after. Is that we would get ready for the coming of the Lord into our lives, into our hearts. And this is just as true once we're Christians. Through saying something like, If you would lick my heart, it would poison you, as one man put it saying, I'm a sinner. And my sin has hurt those around me. It's offended my God. And that if this king doesn't come to me and carry me home, I'm in trouble. And so let me ask you, would you go out? Would you go out? Would you leave your comf- the comfort of your home to go out into the wilderness, you know, travel miles away to, to confess your sins, to be baptized, to say, I need help? I can't do this on my own. You know, and I'm a lot more like the Pharisees than I would care to admit. I'm stubborn and proud. I hate being told I'm wrong. It's a lot easier to go like this. It's their fault. And yet, the sermon ends by showing us that there is a way through the wilderness and it's the one who's coming with Holy Spirit and fire. And this is, this is what leads us to repentance. Repentance. Because the promise is there's is one coming who's going to walk through the wilderness, through this broken, difficult, sin-filled life. He's not going to poison everything. He's actually going to give life. It's Jesus, and he must baptize you. He's, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. And so you think about it, what did Jesus do? He comes out into the wilderness to be baptized by John. And if to be baptized by John means confessing you're a sinner, what is Jesus doing if he's perfect and sinless? Because he is. To be baptized is to say, I will go through the fire of God's judgment. And when Jesus signed up to do that, he was signing up to do that not as somebody who deserves God's judgment, but to go through the fire of God's judgment for his people. And so Jesus gets baptized, he says, to fulfill all righteousness. We're leaking into verses 14, 13 through 15. Jesus says, You should repent because I'm going to go through the wilderness for you and I'm going to take the judgment for you. Right. I mean, you, you've heard these sermons before that you need to repent because you're going to go to hell. The Turner Burn sermons. Right? And I've seen it, seen it in rallies and revivals and big, big events. All kinds of people come forward because everybody wants divine fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. That sounds hot and not like fun. But the amazing thing is you watch Jesus here, the one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, meaning give you God's presence, the kingdom of heaven coming into your life. He signs up for it. He walks towards the fire of the cross. He walks through blazing a trail of perfection and obedience in the midst of sorrow and suffering to go to the cross so that we would be moved to repentance not by his justice but by his kindness. So that we could go through the baptism of the Holy Spirit and still go through fire but instead of being burned up and cast aside it's a fire that actually gets rid of our impurities and changes us. It makes us more like this Jesus. See, the gospel is a completely different motive for repentance because it takes God's kindness, it takes the picture of the future, and it takes the picture of the judgment, puts them together in Christ on the cross and his resurrection. It says, therefore, be honest and repent because God will come to you. Look at his kindness. Look at how his justice fell on him that he took it for you. That it's actually better for you, it's okay for you to say, I'm not okay. I need help. It actually makes you attractive to God. (laughs) This is John's sermon Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has come. The gospel will divide humanity in two. The way to prepare the way for the Lord to come into your life is just to confess. It's a really simple thing, but very difficult, but the, the gospel is what calls us to do so. Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation with the 95 Theses. And the very first item for discussion that he nailed on those doors in 1517, he says, when our Lord Jesus Christ said, all repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he said repent, he desired that all of life be one of repentance. And this is what Luther's getting at, is that you come to faith in Christ and you receive this great gift, that future kingdom, the presence of God with you through confessing your (laughs) sins. But the way the kingdom of heaven comes into your life and stays in your life and becomes a power in your life, it's also through repentance and confession. To where you, you grow in your understanding of the kindness of God. Jesus himself would say it. He who, he who has been forgiven little loves little. And he who has been forgiven much loves much. And so this is what we're called to do this morning. Is to see that repentance. This is what we do. Is we're called as sinners. Out of a true sense of our sin according to Westminster. And out of an, an understanding of the mercy of God with grief and hatred towards our sin, turn from it, run to Christ, and endeavor after a new obedience. <coughs> this is your king. And he's calling you and me to live a lifestyle of repentance. Not just a one-time deal. This is a sermon we need to hear again and again and again. Because I get in trouble and I don't want to admit it, that's my fault. <laughs> All right, here's Oscar Wilde again. He's a poet, but he says, Oh, happy day when your heart breaks. And, and you finally get the peace of pardon. How else may a man make straight his plan, he's referring back to Isaiah, and cleanse his soul from sin. And how else but through a broken heart may the Lord Jesus Christ enter in. You see, we repent on this side of the cross because Jesus the King has blazed a trail of obedience through the desert, through suffering, so that all you have to do is repent and you find yourself on this highway as he carries you as his reward all the way home. Is that not a powerful motivation? And so, how do you do that? We're called to bear fruit according to our repentance. What does that mean? This is that we're gonna end? We'll do this fast. This could be a whole other sermon, so I'll be I'll be kind and end here. <laughs> One of the things that's teaching you and I as Christians, if you're going to repent, don't just repent of the bad things you do, repent of the good things you've, you do as well for the wrong reasons. That's what a Christian is. Like we don't, we don't just say, "Oh man, I, I blew it," which we do say that. God forgive me." We say, "Oh man, I did a, I helped that person not because I love them, but to get them out of my face. Or, or God, this week, I tried to blackmail you with my goodness. I tried to balance out the scales of justice, something I could never do. Forgive me for my good deeds. See, a Christian repents for unrighteousness as well as our righteousness. Because when you confess, that's when you have God's attention. All right? And I know maybe I should have done this in the beginning. Maybe you hear repentance as penance, where you just emotionally beat yourself up and feel bad and then stop at some point when you finally stop feeling bad. That's not, what, that's not what Jesus means. There is a grief because of who you've offended. But, but this true repentance, what it's after is just saying, own it. All of it. Don't add any ifs or buts or ends. Now, we, we've heard these terrible apologies before. I'm sorry if I offended you. No, it's you offended me and I'm sorry. I said those words and I meant it. Forgive me. This is what repentance is teaching us, to to own the whole thing, to confess your offense against God and your neighbor, and you can do that in the context of God's mercy. You see, the fruit of repentance means, yeah, you're going to go after a new obedience and try to be faithful to what God commands you, and that's the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew. But it's saying that you should be sad for the bad things you do, you should be sad for the good things you do for the wrong reasons because it's the sin of unbelief, not trusting in Christ's work for you. That's the quote in your reflection, that unbelief, according to the Scriptures, is the supreme transgression of the world. And it's your sin too, it's most dangerous to your spiritual life because unbelief, it kills our love and it feeds our pride. And a lifestyle of repentance is meant to to attack that. I mean, this is how Oscar Wilde helps us see this. And he he ends. I'll end with this. He says, when Jesus is dealing with the sinner, that's when he's the most romantic and the most real. All right, it's we, the world, we always love the saint as being the nearest possible approach to being perfect. We we idolize people who do really well but not Jesus, because Jesus doesn't settle with turning uh, publicans or sinners into Pharisees. He's after more. See, the conversion of of a sinner into a Pharisee is not a great achievement. No, the sinner is called to repent. This is still Oscar Wilde. Because otherwise, you would never realize what you've done, but it's also the way that God redeems our past and makes it a good thing. All right, so it's the means that Christ showed that anyone could do it. And this is, this is what I, I'm blown away by what Wilde says. He says, the moment, this is what Christ would have said, the moment that the prodigal fell on his knees and wept, thinking about the parable of the prodigal son, the moment he confessed having wasted his father's good, good money with prostitutes, that's when he could turn around and say, okay, all those bad things turned out to be, good, to be used for good. It's, a difficult, it's difficult to understand that, that confession is a good thing. I dare say that one has to go to prison to understand it, and if you don't understand it, maybe you too should go to prison. It might be worth it. <laughs> it's a pretty powerful thing. He writes really poetically, and it's hard to understand. But the gist of it is, when you confess, when you and I repent, when I repent, it means you can look at your sins and say, they are terrible, they've offended a holy God, they deserve justice. But God used it to good, for good because he brought the kingdom of heaven to me. And he's going to carry me home. So go and learn what it means to repent that the kingdom of God is at hand, maybe even in your life. And listen for the, the angels in heaven to rejoice as the sinner comes home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that doesn't shy away from the difficult things about who we are. I pray that uh, your mercy, your kindness, would lead us to the place where we are quick to say, yeah, I did that. I've offended God, and I've offended my neighbor. So teach us to repent, and that we might experience your blessings even here in the wilderness, and help uh, help those of us who are suffering and feeling feeling the stress of the wilderness at this time and see that you're, you, the true king, are carrying your, your weak and tender lambs home through the wilderness. And may we repent and see that you are carrying us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to end by singing hymn number 499.